to Barbara and David, or to Barbara, and David was there. And, and so we praise God for the birth of this new little life in our absolutely beautiful little child. And uh, we rejoice with David and Barbara, don't we? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. About a year ago, I was reading the book of Job through, and I came on two chapters of this book, chapter 29 and chapter 31. And as I read them, uh, it became apparent to me that this was one of the best texts in all of Scripture to understand the nature of fatherhood. And so I want us to turn here on this Father's Day so that we can find out what a godly father is like. Excuse me a second. This is a... This is going to be a personal morning for reasons that you'll understand. But I wonder if, if, if there's one of you, a child maybe, or someone older who would be willing to take my son's place in the nursery this morning. I would like him to be here for the sermon. It's a personal request, but um, I will love you for it, Colin. Well, here he comes. Maybe you don't have to take his place. That's the son I wanted in the service. Job chapters 29 and 31. Again, I am having us turn to these texts this morning because it's Father's Day and I believe here we see the biblical picture, the godly picture, the divine picture of true fatherhood, righteous fatherhood. The sermon is titled, A Blameless and Upright Man. Victor Hugo, the author of the novel Les Miserables, upon which the blockbuster play was based, once listed the 14 greatest works or authors in the literature of the Western world. And then he narrowed the list down to six. And the six were Homer, Aeschylus, Isaiah, Job, Dante, and Shakespeare. And if he narrowed the list down from six to one, Victor Hugo said, quote, if I had to save one piece of literature in the world, I'd save Job. At its heart, the book of Job is a dialogue between Job and his friends on the theme of the nature and the meaning of suffering and the purpose of God behind that suffering. But the dialogue is not academic. It's very personal coming on the heel of the terrible blows that Job himself suffered in the loss of everything that formerly had given him joy, from his livestock to his children to his own reputation and physical health. And chapters 1 and 2 present a blow-by-blow account of each of these losses, as well as the response of Job and his wife to those losses. First, Job's oxen and donkeys were stolen by his enemies, the Sabaeans, and they killed Job's servants who had been using the oxen and donkeys to plow the fields. Next, fire from heaven fell and burned up Job's sheep and his shepherds who were guarding those sheep. 
Next, Job's enemies, the Chaldeans, stole his camels and killed the servants that were guarding them. And then a great wind came out of the wilderness and blew down the house in which all Job's sons and daughters were gathered. The roof fell in on them and not one of them escaped death. Now, how did Job respond to these tragedies? Well, Scripture tells us at the end of the first chapter, verses 21 and 22, he, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then God's approval on Job, the chapter finishes with this statement, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, when the reader might be tempted to think things could not possibly get any worse for Job, Satan afflicts Job personally, covering his body with painful boils from head to foot. And great as that pain is, a greater pain now presents itself in the form of the faithlessness of his wife. Job's wife looks at what Job has lost and the pain he now suffers in his body and she embraces a bitter spirit of unbelief, calling her husband to follow her in this great wickedness. And so in Job 2, 9 and 10, we read that Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But again, demonstrating his godliness, Job responds to his wife saying this. He, Job, said to her, verse 10, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, the approval of God. And following this exchange between Job and his wife, We read that Job is paid a visit by three friends. We read in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 2, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. And then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And so we come to the end of the second chapter of Job. And starting with Job chapter 3, we find the written record of the dialogue between Job and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The arguments range far and wide. Each speech, though, related to the overarching theme of suffering and the purpose of God. And back and forth the arguments go. A friend speaks... Job responds, chapter after chapter. But as the arguments come to an end, two chapters call for our attention today as we give thanks to our Heavenly Father for our earthly fathers. Chapters 29 and 31. Here we find Job's final speech. Chapter 29 contains Job's lament over how far down he has fallen. In it, he lists the blessings and honors he used to enjoy. 
thereby illustrating how much he has lost. And then in chapter 31, Job turns directly to God and calls God to remember and to honor his righteousness. Now right here we might be tempted to say, to answer quickly, quoting Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. We might point out that Job too was a sinner. And certainly he was. And as a sinner, Job was saved by grace as we are also. Job is not the one man on the face of the earth who will stand on the day of judgment dressed in his own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. James 3.2 says, We all stumble in many ways. And this goes for Job too. And yet Job was a righteous man. Concerning Job, God Himself said, in verse, chapter 1, verse 8b, there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now let me read that again. This is what God says about Job. There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And it is Job's righteousness that we will look at this Father's Day. Here in chapters 29 and 31, we see a righteous man. We see a model father. A father that in many ways I recognize personally from observing the lives of my own father, Joe Bailey, and my father-in-law, Ken Taylor. So permit me to speak to you personally this morning, illustrating godly fatherhood first through the life of that righteous man, Job but then also through two other righteous men God blessed me and my loved ones with as our earthly fathers. So let us read together Job chapters 29 and 31. Again, this is the Word of God and it is eternally true. I added chapter 31 so it won't be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, it will help you to follow along. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone over my head, and by His light I walked through darkness, as I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, and when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves, and the old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it gave witness of me, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper." The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. And then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. To me, they listened and waited, <clears throat> and kept silent for my counsel. 
After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain, and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose a way for them, and sat as chief, and dwelt as a king among the troops, as one who comforted the mourners. And then if you would turn over to chapter 31, please. And here, Job does not so much list the blessings of his past as demand that his righteousness be recognized. And so he makes a list of the righteousness which God himself has indicated Job possessed. Beginning with verse 1, he says this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises and when he calls to me account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? If I have kept the poor from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it, but from my youth he grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. For calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of His majesty I can do nothing. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. Have the men of my tent not said, Who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. Have I covered my transgression like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? 
because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or have caused its owners to lose their lives, let briars grow instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Father, as we study this text, we come to you weak and foolish and sinful and proud. We pray that you will give us teachable spirits, that we may learn the nature of godly fatherhood, and that we may repent and emulate this great and righteous man, Job. Now may the words of my faltering mouth and tongue and the meditations of our deceitful hearts by the power of your Spirit be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now remember that God said Job was a righteous man, and here we hear Job's own testimony concerning his righteousness. Eliphaz accuses Job of oppressing the poor. In Job chapter 22, one of the speeches of Eliphaz, he says to Job, quote, Is not your wickedness great? And your iniquities without end? For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. And so this is Job's friend, Eliphaz. And how does Job respond? What does he say concerning himself? Well, Job is not hesitant to declare his innocence. In chapter 29, verse 12, he says this, When the poor and the orphans were helpless and cried out for someone to defend them, Job took up their cause. Verse 15 tells us that Job was eyes for the blind and feet for the lame. Verse 16 tells us that Job was a father to the needy and investigated their case until he learned the truth. And verse 17 tells us when the wicked were oppressing the poor, the orphan, the widow, the blind, the lame, and the needy, Job attacked the wicked. He broke their jaws and he snatched their victims from their teeth. And as Job was righteous in these ways, he was presenting to us a picture of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. As he has prophesied concerning in Psalm 72, the prayer of David for his son Solomon and his kingship. We read there, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. We read also of this attribute of taking up the cause of the oppressed and the poor and the orphan and widow. In Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12, 
Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? I was reading my favorite Roman Catholic publication this last week, The Wanderer. And in The Wanderer, it had an article that the headline was something to the effect that the person who fails to do what is right is as sinful as the person who does what is wrong. And we recognize a theme throughout Scripture. As evangelicals, we instead have been taught that the main purpose and goal of holiness is to keep us from doing what is wrong. And so we adopt a very, very stingy attitude towards holiness where if you avoid being in bed with a woman, you haven't committed adultery. If you avoid having anybody know what you give, then you haven't been an idolater. And we go on and on avoiding sin, avoiding uh, very public or, or very known acts of wickedness. But when it comes to standing up for the oppressed and the poor, we have very, very minimal understanding and almost no obedience. Uh, as evangelicals, we, I remember a woman saying to me at my former church in Wisconsin one day, a, a wealthy woman, when I was making the case for helping some of the poor, I remember her saying to me, that's what we pay taxes for. And with that simple statement, we pass off all of the Scripture which commands us to take up the cause of the oppressed. I believe that one of the places where we will most come under judgment when we stand before the throne of God is the matter of abortion and euthanasia and infanticide where so many of us are content to go to the Crisis Pregnancy Center and help those women who have decided that they want to take their children and, and give, give birth to them. But we don't speak up for the child that is being taken into that clinic and whose life will soon be ended in payment to Planned Parenthood and the doctor. It's a nasty job. And, and this is the nature of Job's righteousness. We see that Job was not simply a man who was willing to have widows and orphans into his home, who was willing to feed and to clothe the poor. But what does it say about Job? It says what about him? It says that he broke the jaws of the wicked, that he snatched the prey out of their mouth. It says that he was an advocate. Now, how do you do that without making enemies? You can work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center and have no enemies. Well, it's true that some of the radical feminists even hate that. But generally, it's a positive statement. Certainly, no card-carrying Christian will uh, accuse you of being selfish in doing that. But boy, you go stand in front of the killing place right in our town, right downtown. And uh, Carol can tell you what will happen to you. And so we can't pass over lightly the fact that it was not just that Job was generous to the poor, but Job was also an enemy to the oppressor. And this is the aspect of holiness that as evangelicals we can't understand. And the reason is because this is the masculine aspect of holiness. But more about that later. In Isaiah 7, 1, verses 17 and 18, we are commanded, learn to do good, seek justice, and then what? Reprove the ruthless. Reprove them. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. 
Come now and let us... Re- oh, now we know where we are, don't we? <laughs> let me give you the context of this precious promise we have quoted so often. It says, Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Isn't it interesting, the text that we memorize and the text that we don't? The context for this promise, this precious promise of forgiveness and righteousness and cleansing, what is the context? It's the repentance of turning and becoming an advocate and a defender of breaking the jaw of the wicked who holds the poor in his mouth as his prey. And so if we turn to those righteous acts, then the Lord says, your sins, though they be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And so we see again and again this theme in chapter 29 of Job taking up the part of the poor and the oppressed, not just giving to them, but also being their advocate in court defending them in the city gates, which was the court of the time, and even going so far as personally to take on their oppressors and to snatch the prey out of their jaws. Now we turn to chapter 31 and we see more statements of the righteousness of Job. In Job 31, we see verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And so we see part of Job's righteousness was that he did not allow himself any second looks. It was not enough for him to avoid the bed of adultery. He would not look on a woman with lust. In Matthew 5.28, our Lord says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I remember a number of years ago, after multiple counseling sessions with different couples, realizing how often adultery came not so much from just pure sexual desire, but rather for a growing emotional intimacy on the part of a man and a woman who was not his wife. I had a dear friend whose father had uh, been in the habit of going and doing every odd job that was needed by a single woman. And, uh, you know, he'd put up her storm windows and he was always over doing odd jobs at her house. I had an, uh, a man in my church who was, again, always over at another couple's house doing odd jobs as the husband was working in his business during the day. This man had great freedom. Uh, And I did counseling in a neighboring church and had a wife tell me that she was very concerned about her marriage because so often she worked during the day, but her husband was free. So often she would call home and not be able to get through on the phone. And she would find out that he was talking to a mutual friend of theirs, a woman. And she told me, she said, I know that I'm just being jealous and that I'm unfair. My husband uh, treasures that friendship and I should not be stingy about it. And so I wrote an article warning against emotional intimacy and saying that often what causes adultery is not 
just the beginning of lust, raw sexual lust, but rather it's a growing intimacy between a man and a woman who is not his wife. And then that intimacy produces its natural fruit. And I sent it into a magazine that had agreed to publish an article each month by some member of the Bailey family. And immediately I got a call back from the woman who was serving as the editor of the magazine saying that she would not run the article. Well, I thought that we had an agreement that whatever we sent in would would get run. I knew it had to be decent. But I didn't think that the problem was that the article wasn't written well enough. And so I began to ask her why. She said, well, because I think you're unreasonable. I think you're saying that a man shouldn't have friends other than his own spouse. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, that's basically what I'm saying. Um, what's wrong with that? Now, it might help you to understand the, the, the exchange that this woman was uh, <laughs> from uh, <clears throat> Los Angeles. Um, not to say anything about California, other than it's a place I would never want to raise my children. So this editor and I engaged in a long back and forth about the merits of the article. I maintained that it was an accurate and godly warning and that it was publishable. She maintained that it was wacko. Well, when I hung up, I was shaken and I began to think maybe I was wacko. So I made two phone calls. I called my father and I called my father-in-law. And when I called my father and told him what I had written, he told me a story. When he was involved in InterVarsity, he was the area director for the Northeast. They lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, One of the colleges that he uh, provided spiritual leadership for was a women's college, an elite women's college. Uh, You'd know the name. And at that college, there was a small group that he would go and lead each week, a Bible study. And he told me that... Over the weeks and months that he led the Bible study, there was a woman in that Bible study that began to be very attractive to him. But it happened subliminally in in his subconscious. He wasn't aware of his growing attraction to the woman. And then he said that one day he was on his way to that Bible study, driving in the car, and he realized that his heart was looking forward to seeing her. You know what my dad did? He turned the car around and he delegated that responsibility and he never went back to that Bible study. So then I called my father-in-law and I asked my father-in-law if I was wacko. And my father-in-law Maybe I should have waited a couple of months to do this. My father-in-law told me this story. He had been working as a director at Moody Bible Institute, Moody's Press. And one night he was working late. And as he worked at his desk, his secretary came in, he told me. And in a very nonchalant way, I'm sure innocent, As they worked together, she sat on the edge of his desk. And Dad Taylor said to me that 
he asked her to please leave his office. And the next day he saw that she was transferred to another position. And what does Job say? Job says what? He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? You know, we don't normally think this of this as fatherhood, but what is the what is the fruit of allowing her to sit there on your desk? What is the fruit of going to the small group Bible study? What is the fruit? The fruit is that your children end up fatherless. Do you understand this? And I am not ashamed to honor my father and my father-in-law. Not ashamed at all. And I think of all the men across the country who would have been overwhelmed by this stupid, foolish woman. And instead I called her back with my resolve firm that that article would be published. And I knew I could get it published because they were not going to say no to my father and he was behind me. But you know what happened? Before I could say anything, she said, hey, I've changed my mind. And I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, while I was talking to you, my husband came home. And he heard the conversation. And when we got off the phone together, he told me I was wrong. And she said, it must be something about men. Well, I was content to leave it there. You will find it interesting that when that article went into print, one of those couples that I mentioned earlier got a copy of it and called me and threatened to sue me to take me to court for telling their story public, publicly. And the irony of it was that the particular story I told in that article was not the story of that couple, but that's how chronic and constant and frequent this situation is. Some of you are sitting there thinking, I'm preaching this because of your your own sin in this area, and I warn you to flee from it. If you want to be a good father and a good grandfather, or if you want to be honored in your home, this is a truth you must hear from Job and from Ken Taylor and from Joe Bailey. In verse 5, Job says this about himself, If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit. And so we see another aspect of of true godly fatherhood. We see that Job would not cheat on his income tax forms. He would not lie or deceive others to further his own interests. Job was scrupulously honest. In verse 7, he says, If my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands. See, Job never strayed from the straight and narrow path. He never took the wide path that led to destruction. He spent no nights in vanity fair. He did not follow his eyes in the lust of the flesh or the pride of life. His eyes had blinders. So many of you don't even know what we're talking about anymore when I say this, but when horses and animals are in, in, in work, uh, a horse pulling a wagon, you put blinders up beside their eyes. Why? To keep them from looking to the right and the left, but to keep their eyes focused on their work. And Job's eyes had blinders on them. 
to keep his heart close to God. He looked neither to the right to the left, but straight ahead. In 1 John 2.16, we're warned of the danger of looking to the right and to the left. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so Job was single-minded in his pursuit of godliness and righteousness. And it says that he did not allow dishonest or cheating prophets to stick to his hands. In verse 9, it says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway. And so Job did not look at his neighbor's wife and wish he had her and her beauty for his own. He did not treasure secret desires for her, nor did he hang out at his neighbor's house doing odd jobs in order to catch glimpses of her. What do we read in Proverbs 7 that the adulteress said to entice the fool to come into her bed? It says that she said to the fool, For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. And there will be no shortage in your life of women. Or if you're a woman, no shortage of men that will entice you to come into their bed. They do it to pastors, they'll do it to you. And it will happen in the church. Almost without exception, the adulteries that I have been in, counseled with and disciplined and, 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 and tr- tried to heal with my wife have been adulteries that have come within the church within the ministry of the church, within the friendships, within the small groups of the church. And the women who have sought to entice me to go to bed with them have been women in the church. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. But such enticements were of no use with Job. Like Joseph, he fled them. Verse 13, if I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me. Job ran his own household with faithfulness and fairness. He did not overwhelm his servants for the profit and pride of his own flesh and blood. Those who were of a humble estate in life found him just as much their protector and advocate as those who were his own flesh and blood descendants. Because they were powerless under the law, his slaves did not find Job turning a deaf ear to their claims for truth and justice. And this was true not just when they had a claim against Job himself, but also those who belonged to him. He was not playing favorites. He did not treat his own flesh and blood differently than he treated those who were... slaves in his household and keep in mind the powerlessness of a servant and of a slave. And so we imagine that the servants and the slaves loved him. He was equitable and would not twist justice to save himself or his own loved ones from humiliation. Job was not harsh with them. He did not browbeat them. He listened to their explanations and made the right, not the easiest decision. Verse 16, Job says, If I have kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. Job always shared with those in need. He never turned away from the needy in indifference. 
Verse 17, Or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it. And so we see that Job's table was surrounded with the unfortunate and humble. He practiced what Jesus commanded. When Jesus said in Luke 14, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. His wife and the widow, his daughters and sons and the orphan, all alike sat and ate at Job's table. Job was not like the rich man who left Lazarus at his gate sharing food with the dogs. Verse 18, But from my youth he grew up with me as a father, and from infancy I guided her. Again, he's referring back to the orphan and to the widow. And he's saying that he was a father to the orphan. He's saying that he was a husband to the widow. That he provided counsel and guided him. They did not just eat at his table, but he was a father and a husband to them with absolute purity. He disciplined the orphan because he loved them. He counseled the widow because he loved her. Verse 19, If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, Job clothed the poor, giving them wool from his own flocks of sheep. His prophets went to the poor, not simply to his own home and family. Verse 21, If I have lifted up my hand against the orphan, because I saw I had support in the gate again. Remember that the gate in ancient times was the place of justice. It was the place where uh, cases of disagreement, of theft, of crimes were adjudicated. And what he's saying is, even when he knew the court would stand with him in oppressing the poor, he would not do it. He was not going to take cheap profit. He was not going to take advantage of the poor if he could escape the disapproval publicly of his society. He would not profit even legally at the expense or to the harm of the fatherless child. Verse 24, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, Job was no lover of mammon. He was not a builder of silos reclining in his lazy boy, smugly saying to himself, Look at what I've done with my own hands. Take it easy now, old boy. Eat, drink, and be merry, for life owes you. But beyond pride, Job didn't even trust in gold or fine gold. He had it, and he did not trust in it. Nor did he gloat, telling his neighbors and friends of his riches and financial exploits, of the profitability of his company, hoping to excite in them envy. This is gloating. Verses 26 and 27, If I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon going in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed in my hand, threw a kiss from my mouth. So we see, Job is not guilty of idolatry. In Deuteronomy 4.19, Beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Just a question. 
But is not the evolutionist who denies the Creator God and believes that the earth, the universe, and all that is in it created itself, is not this man an idolater? Has he not looked on the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and been drawn away and worshipped them and served them? What is the man who worships the creation rather than the Creator other than an idolater? Verses 29 and 30, Job says, Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy, or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. And so we see that Job left vengeance to God. He did not repay his enemies himself, nor did he even allow his heart secretly to rejoice at their humiliation or their destruction. Our Lord says in Matthew 5:43 and 44, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 31, Job says of himself, Have the men of my tent not said, Who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? Now this is a little bit obscure. What does he mean here? Well, Job's men and servants said, there's no end to Job's charity. Everyone, even his own enemies, finds a place at his table and eats his meat. Even when the men of his own household stirred themselves up for revenge against Job's enemies, complaining about their taking advantage of him, Job remained unperturbed and would not give in to them in their cries for payback. One of the more interesting things that I have watched through the years is the tension in my mother-in-law's heart, Margaret Taylor, over the poverty that she and dad suffered in their early years of marriage. You could always see as she would describe that grinding poverty, and when I say grinding poverty, uh, that's what I mean. Uh, you know, the time when they did not have a sink in their kitchen. The time when she would look in a window and cry, seeing a jar of marmalade and knowing that she could not afford to buy it. And so you'd look at her as a mother, being concerned for her children and their welfare. And then her husband, who was willing to take work in Christian organizations where he was paid a pittance, and then even the pittance that he was paid being willing to give it away. Not just being willing to give it away, but being an advocate for giving it away. And so, back in 1954, he was in Abidjan, the Ivory Coast, and he wrote her a letter, and I want to read this letter to you because it's a good example of the refusal on my father-in-law's part to put his trust in money and instead his advocacy for the poor and the oppressed and those despised in the world. He begins at February 1, 1954, Darling. The plane to Bukai was canceled yesterday, so we were left here to await tomorrow morning's flight. Air France is a noble institution and the accommodations here at the Grand Hotel are the best. I have a copy of Book 2 of Hudson Taylor's biography with me and although I disagree with some parts of his philosophy, that missionaries, for instance, should never ask for money but only pray it in, 
I have been impressed by his thought that going into debt was dangerous because it meant taking things into one's own hands without waiting for God's approval as shown by providing the means. Surely God could direct one to go into debt. And so I disagree with his universal prohibition and also with what he says debt is. I would think a fully protected mortgage on a home is not the same species of animal. But in general, the idea sounds quite reasonable that God will usually provide in advance, and it is safer for knowing the Lord's will. But so far as this trip is concerned, it has made me realize that evangelical literature overseas had $450, and Africa Literature Committee had $200 available for the trip when I left, and a request for further funds was included in the latest evangelical literature overseas bulletin. In other words, one of these requests for money that they would send out in the mail. And so if it has not been added to, in other words, these two amounts, 450 and 200, the request did not get in additional monies. If it has not been added to, the money will run out at Lagos, Nigeria, after reserving enough to come home through Brazil. And I have concluded that I ought not to go on to Leopoldville and Johannesburg unless Pete Gunther wires me that more has come in. For some reason, this was a hard decision to make, not to tell Pete to have ELO borrow the money and wire it to me so that I could extend the trip. A mistake at the hotel switchboard set my telephone ringing wildly at 4 a.m. this morning. No one seems to understand English in these parts, so I couldn't explain. I hope someone made his plain. So I had my quiet time a little earlier and longer than usual and could seem to reach no other conclusion than that mentioned, that I did not feel free to have ELO borrow the money so that I could extend the trip. It was a relief to get it decided, even though dis disappointing. The Lord spoke further, I felt, when sometime later as I was praying about our housing situation and your need for clothes, etc., suddenly there came to mind, without warning, the frightening question as to whether I would be willing to use part or all of the royalty check. This would have been the royalty check from the first book he ever did, The Bible and Pictures for Little Eyes. And so this, this was his first check for that. And he says that God prompted him, asking him if he'd be willing to use this first check to extend this trip, thus being able to go on to Leopoldville. Of course, I certainly was not willing to do any such thing. And I felt a bit ill and prayed that this fanatical idea might quickly depart. If one went around doing such things, where would one stop? We need the money for so many things, as I explained to the Lord. Darling, I hope you won't be disappointed and that you won't feel that it is a wrong thing to do, but I seem driven by the Lord to tell him yes or no. If he wants me to use the money for this purpose, will I? And of course, I could only finally tell him yes. Do we love God? The money... Was, has somehow been an especially glittering toy for me. At last, after these many years, we could have a substantial sum to decide what to do with instead of having to spend it to keep out of debt. It could be used in so many ways, maybe even a trip together somewhere. But the Lord and His will are more important than my plans. It has been a long time since I have felt that I made any personal sacrifice. For the most part, it has been a very joyful experience to serve the Lord together. 
If the money comes into ELO from other sources, I do not know whether our money should also be given, but if the ELO money doesn't come in, I plan now to go on to Leopoldville anyway and will repay ELO with the royalty money when I get home. Whether to go beyond Leopoldville, I don't know yet, but the basic decision is made, the agony over for me anyway, and the money is there even with increasing cheerfulness if the Lord wants it. I'm sure that his further direction will become clear as I proceed. With all my love, Ken. And then he adds a P.S. Hmm... Come to think of it, the Lord has promised to open up the windows of heaven in response to this readily given gift. Not a bad bargain. The New York Times keeps statistics on the sales of books. For many years, they would not put in any Christian books into their statistics because Christian books just wiped out other books in sales. Well, this book that he just wrote and that he's just about to receive his first royalty check continues to sell today. It's one of the top, I don't know how, top 10, 20, 50, I don't know, uh, children's books that have ever been written. So how much do you think the Lord repaid him? He says, the royalty check mentioned in the letter was 350 my first royalty income from Moody Press. Actually, it wasn't the Bible and Pictures for Little Eyes. It was Stories for the Children's Hour, published a few months earlier. He says, as my salary has increased through the years and the children are now out of the nest and in their own homes, we are able to give away 50% or more of our pre-tax income. Pre-tax income. As well as 10% of Tyndale House's pre-tax profits. But the Lord was as pleased when we were unable to give as much. He appreciates the widow's might as much or more than large sums. We have had the joy of giving in each phase of our lives and have received our full share of joy in return. I have mentioned these financial details without knowing whether others should do as we have been led to do. How I thank God for the privilege Margaret and I have had in seeing the work of God being helped throughout the earth. And I could tell you story after story after story after story after story of mom and dad and their generosity. I could tell you of my own father, how as a discipline one year, he had my brother spend that year, or maybe it was only a month, I think it was only a month, but he had him do all the checks of the household. And I remember my brother David coming to me wide-eyed and saying to me, do you have any idea how much dad gives away to missions? I could tell you of not just generosity financially, but generosity of the food and the table and the house. Generosity of time. I could tell you that both Mary Lee and I grew up in homes where our fathers were not concerned about their own convenience. But every Lord's Day, as church ended, they would be the last people there encouraging the saints. And then, at the last moment, invariably, my father-in-law would show up in the house with extra guests that Mum had no idea were coming. In fact, at one point in the book, he says that he learned that Meg would like a couple of hours' notice. Well, he, she never got it. And there was always more being thrown into the pot in the kitchen. And I saw this with my own eyes for seven years before I was married and now for 30 years after marriage. 37 years I have seen this. I remember when we moved to Wheaton 
they lived in this little hovel of a place, and I hope you won't mind my saying that, but it was a, it was, it was a hovel of a house. There was this little farmhouse. I mean, I just remember it being absolutely tiny. And we had shown up in Wheaton. We'd moved from Philadelphia, and so the Taylors had us over. Now, of all the people to have us over, do you think the Taylors with their ten children should be the ones to take the initiative? I don't remember ever going, and I won't name the names, but some of these names you'd know, they never had us over. And they were wealthy. But boy, the Taylors had us over. I remember going in there one Sunday afternoon after, after church, and they were fixing, the, the parents went in the kitchen, and, and in the living room, there was a tiny little living room, and there were sofas the whole way around the living room. Isn't that right? It was like a little square room, and there were sofas the whole way around. And seated in those sofas were the Taylor children. And I would guess by that time, maybe only eight or nine of them. I'm not sure. Anyhow, I show up, and I was probably, I would guess, uh, fifth grade. So how old is a fifth grader? Ten? Eleven. Thank you, Tim. So I show up in the room, and here are all the people, all these kids are in the room. What I remember is not one of them said a word to me. And so I sat down very awkwardly while they all read, because that's what tailors always do. They sit and read. After a little while, Mrs. Taylor came in the room and she said, Would you like something to read? (laughs) And I said, Yes! (laughs) Tiny, tiny living room. Not enough space for my parents to be there. They were in the kitchen as, as Mom Taylor made the meal. And they were the ones that had us over. And I could tell you story after story after story of the people that have lived in the home. I myself, when I was in, as Dad put it, my hippie days. Uh, Dad remembers the story a little bit wrong. But nevertheless, in those days, we asked and they said yes to allowing me to live in their home as I saved money to go back to college. And what a precious home it was. What a precious home it's been through the years. My own father the women that lived in our home as they gave birth to their babies. I remember particularly a woman who came in with her Alaskan Malmute. And my father hated dogs. And my mother hated dirt. And that dog, everywhere it went in the house, left about 10 pounds of fur. And my parents allowed her to have her dog in our home. And I could go on and on and on talking about the widows and the orphans and the needy and the missionaries that had the generosity of the food and the table and the time and the bedrooms and the money. Yesterday, in preparing to preach, or day before yesterday, I quantified something I'd been wanting to quantify for some time. I remember when I worked for a very wealthy couple in Manchester-by-the-Sea, they had a home that was over the cliffs of the Atlantic Ocean, and I was their house boy. That meant I polished the brass and washed the floors and chauffeured them back and forth to the airport when they were going to West Palm Beach, and that I planted the garden, cut the grass, trimmed, uh, washed the 45 different seats in the different parts of the garden, uh, did anything that needed to be done. 
And one day as I worked there, I came in the basement and I heard the lady of the house say imperiously upstairs, Is the boy here yet? And at the time I was uh, 30 years old, I had one child and another one on the way, and I almost walked out that day. A short time later, the Wall Street Journal did an article on my father-in-law. And the substance of the article was how he had given away all the profits from the Living Bible, 40 million copies. And I remember in in, in the pride of my own flesh, I was just aching to cut that article out and give it to Mr. Spalding so he knew who I was and who my wife was. Because I knew it would destroy his life. It would be incomprehensible to Mr. and Mrs. Spalding that this man's son-in-law worked for them and was their boy. They were desperately trying to hold on to wealth they inherited, and none of their children were doing particularly well financially. And so there was this constant tension financially in that home as they saw the wealth dwindle from generation to generation. And God gave me the grace to only think it. Job wouldn't think it. Dad Taylor wouldn't think it. My father wouldn't think it. I thought it. God gave me the grace to never (laughs) give them that article. So they remain uh, ignorant. But over the years, I've wondered. And so the other day, I asked Mark, I said to him, so Mark, what are the royalties on the Living Bible? And Mark said, well, the royalties that they gave to the foundation just from the Living Bible are $40 million dollars. And I said, well, what about the company? And he said, well, when they gave the company, because mom and dad privately held the company, he said, when they gave the company to the foundation a few years ago, the company was valued at $90 million. And I'm telling you, that's, that's a drop in the bucket of mom and dad. Now, do you think there might be any connection with that little check for a couple hundred dollars for his first book, the royalty check that he used to help missions? you think Scripture is true when it says that the person who's faithful over little things will be given larger things? Do you think the Bible is true when it says, test me in this and see if I will not pour out the wealth of heaven? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse? All right. Job was a righteous man. And Job did not let his left hand know what his right hand had done. It was not just that Job believed in honoring God with his wealth, but it's also that Job was humble in these things. Job was not parading his righteous deeds. He was saying to God, God, if this is not true, then judge me. I could speak, and I probably will be speaking, off and on in the coming months, very often about my father-in-law. You know that he died. Some of you may not know this. You know that he died a week and a half ago. Mary Lee and I had the privilege of being able to be uh, with Hannah and Taylor and Gretchen in the bedroom when he died. We had gotten there 20 minutes earlier. We were singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And it was beautiful. 
It was about the third verse where Gretchen said, I think he stopped breathing. And so over the last week and a half, I've had a lot of time to think about this great man. And a number of years ago when I spoke at Tyndale Chapel, I told the people in chapel there that Dad's greatness was not the living Bible. But I think what symbolized Dad was actually the Bible and pictures for little eyes, and the living Bible was just an extension of that. Dad had a heart for the little guy. And he was their advocate. I remember a woman at my home church, Mary Lee's church also, she was a freak. She was always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And she happened to come into some money, and so she was a landlord in the community, but she was just plain ornery. Uh, I once had friends that rented a house from them, and they would make jokes about her all the time. Do you know who honored that woman and cared for her, emotionally even? My father-in-law. You never, ever heard in any way a hint of humor about her from him. You know also that when my father-in-law had a man working with him at Tyndale House, one time this man had had a bad reputation earlier, and my father and he, my, my father and my father-in-law knew that bad reputation, and my father-in-law and my father had words over whether or not Mr. Taylor should have hired him. Mr. Taylor went ahead and hired him, and I don't think he should have, all right? But for heaven's sakes, the man made mistakes that were in a good direction. Anyhow, he hired him. And a short time after he hired him, that man ran off with his secretary from Tyndale House. You know what Dad did? Dad faithfully cared for that widow. You know what else he did? He would not speak to that man. I'm guessing for 35 years or so, he refused to speak to him when he saw him in public. And then just a few years ago, somehow I heard that he had restored his relationship with the man, and so I asked whether the man had repented. And Dad said that he didn't know, but that he had felt an indication from the Lord that it was time for him to embrace the man again and to begin to speak to him. Well, Job was a man of God. Job was a father. You understand? He's a father. And if you say you haven't had a father, I have shown you fatherhood this morning from Scripture, and then I've told you it's alive still today. You have no excuse. You have no excuse. You can be a father after God's own heart. Okay, David? You. You don't have to have had a father like this. You can have had Job as your father. Well, I want to end by one more tribute to my father-in-law. Because this is Job-like character of godliness. When Mary Lee and I got home, we found a letter in the mail. And this is the final communication from Dad. So we've been gone a week and a half. And while we were gone, this letter came from Dad. A cover letter over it from the seed company, which is the, the part of Wycliffe that does translations using uh, people who speak the language as their native tongue. It doesn't bring in outside linguistics experts, but it uses people who this is their native tongue. And Dad had given uh, a large amount of money to the seed uh, company for translation of Scripture around the world. 
And the letter is from Roy Peterson, the president of the seed company, this, uh, this, this subsidiary of Wycliffe. It's dated June 2nd, and it says this, Dear friends of Ken and Margaret Taylor, over the years, the Taylors have done more to advance God's word for all peoples than almost anyone we know. We had an exciting evening planned for you to join us in celebrating that fact. Their letter of regret, which is enclosed, is a disappointment to all of us. Heidi, do you remember when that came to the office? And I made a snide remark to the effect that, well, this is what giving a large amount of money gets you. A dinner honoring. And I should have thought at the time, this is completely out of character. But I didn't think that. I was prepared to believe the worst. He says, their letter of regret, which is enclosed, is a disappointment to all of us. However, our love for them and the esteem in which we hold them leaves us no choice but to cancel the formal celebration. We know that you will continue to celebrate with us in spirit the commitment and heritage of this wonderful couple. We deeply appreciate your understanding and support. He, he, in the middle of it, he, he tries to get you to give money. All right. But there's the essence of his cover letter. And then enclosed a letter, our final communication from Dad. June 2nd. Cancellation of dinner on September 19th. Dear friend, as you may remember, you recently received an invitation from the seed company to attend a dinner, quote, to honor the tailors for the global impact they've had on Bible translation and to prayerfully face the challenge to finish the task in which they have invested their lives, unquote. From the earliest conversations with founder Bernie May, Margaret and I have prayed for and contributed to the seed company, and we have watched with grateful amazement as it has already helped to start translation work in 287 Bibleless people groups, completing 22 New Testaments and some Old Testament portions, impacting approximately 200 million people. The seed company's goal is to see Bible translation finish for the remaining 2,600 languages by training nationals rather than English-speaking Westerners in the art of Bible translation in their own language. The very first words of these nationals are in their own language, and they have grown up knowing their cultural attitudes and customs. The Westerners can then become excellent trainers and helpers rather than learning those facts and attitudes as foreigners. It has been delightful to find not infrequently that God has already called and prepared someone in the Bibleist tribe who has been called by God and is anxious to be trained for Bible translation. Margaret and I feel as strongly favorable as ever for the seed company. However, it did not seem appropriate to us to be singled out for honor. And so after prayerful consideration, we have asked that the event be canceled. Our request has been accepted. So please remove this September 19th event from your calendar or date book as it will not be held. The work of the seed company is moving rapidly forward. We believe your prayers and help to the seed company are deeply appreciated by God who called each of us to add our part. Should you wish to join us in contributing, your check, tax deductible, can be sent to cordially use Kenneth M. Taylor. And so this is my heritage because of the beautiful woman I married as my wife. But more than that, this is your heritage because she is the wife of your pastor. More than that, this is his heritage because he sees Job. And I think this is a good day for us to commit ourselves 
to being fathers after God's own heart. You know what the Bible says true religion is? The Bible says true religion is to what? To care, to look out for the widow and the orphan in their distress. So, you going to do it? Huh? My dad said that when he was growing up, there was an Episcopal bishop named Daddy Hall that ran a seminary much like the one that our church has just started. He wasn't going to send them off to academic institutions. He was going to take them into his church and train them there. And one of the jobs these young men had was walking up and down the streets of New York City with sandwich boards on that had various, uh, various uh, scripture verses and other sayings that would call people's attention to Jesus Christ. My dad says his favorite one was, as you walk towards the man in training wearing the sandwich board, it said on the front of it, I'm a fool for Christ. And then as they went by you and you looked at the back, it said, whose fool are you? So whose fool are you? What have you given up in exchange for your soul? Your pension fund? Your reputation? A little money, a little profit sticking to your hand? A little overlooking of the widow and the orphan? A little non-recognition of the little ones killed in their mother's womb because it's such a gnarly thing to stand up for. Whose fool are you? Who has given you honor instead of God? What do you want? You want to arrive before the judgment seat of God? And do you want Him to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy that I have prepared for my servants. Or do you want to grow to the grave with a long funeral cortege and a great big monument? We're going to bury Dad at a grave over by the road. As we came in, we faced a humongous monument. And it said Gary over the top. And I thought to myself, is that the Gary of the Gary Wheaton Bank? <laughs> okay, I'll stop. <clears throat> Who's fool are you? Job was a righteous man. Dad Taylor was a righteous man. As Mom said, no one can say anything evil of him. Yes, he made mistakes. She knew he was a sinner. But enemies? Not hardly. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Job.